John chapter 2 is where we're beginning today. Beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. All right, we are in week, um, what is this, week four, week three, week four of our study of the Gospel of John, and in the first week of this study, what we said was that one of the primary questions that we wanted to be asking throughout all of this is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And John is definitely seeking to answer that question for his readers. Today we get one of the most famous accounts in all of the Gospels, the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine. And gosh, this is one of the most talked about scenes in the life of Christ. I was telling uh, our worship team and other folks this morning when we had our time of prayer before the service that it was real interesting to dig into this uh, story over the last week because I also just dug into some of the like mythology surrounding the wedding at Cana as well. And there are all of these weird stories uh, that are speculative or made up that go along with this. And some of them were kind of funny, like um, uh, the Mormons uh, in the past have taught that this was Jesus's wedding that was taking place. And Jesus was getting married to Mary Magdalene and uh, Mary and Martha from Bethany because Jesus was a polygamist. Um, so, like, crazy stuff. Um, certainly doesn't say anything like that here. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, famous Roman Catholic theologian, uh, believed that this was the Apostle John's wedding that was taking place, um, even though Scripture doesn't tell us that at all. Um, we actually don't know whose wedding this was. And so whenever, whenever there is sort of an absence of uh, knowledge in the Scriptures or an absence of data um, throughout human history, throughout Christian history, people are quick to make up stuff or to speculate about what could be. Um, but the reality is, is we don't really know whose wedding this is. What we do know, though, is uh, what John tells us, which is that Jesus was there, his mother was there, and that they ran out of wine. Um, even though this is one of the most talked about scenes in the life of Christ, John is actually presenting this as simply being the first 
in a series of what he calls signs that are reflective of Jesus's supernatural power. The first in a series of signs. And following this, John's going to present us with at least six other significant moments that he calls signs. Um, in chapter 4, Jesus is going to heal a man's son without even being there, without even being present. In chapter 5, Jesus heals a man who's been an invalid for 38 years. In chapter 6, Jesus will feed 5,000 people from just a few scraps of food, and then a ton of food will be picked up afterwards, after everybody's eaten. In chapter 9, Jesus will heal a man from lifelong blindness. In chapter 11, Jesus will literally resurrect Lazarus from the grave. Um, and then in chapter 20, Jesus gives the ultimate sign with his own resurrection. And often, uh, this is called here in John 2, this is called the first miracle that Jesus performed. Uh, but I don't know that that's actually true. Uh, it would probably be better to think of this as Jesus' first public miracle. After all, Jesus did something miraculous back in chapter 1 when he displayed supernatural knowledge to Nathaniel. Do you remember that when he said, I saw you under the fig tree? He displayed his power to Nathaniel. But John doesn't call that a sign. And, and likewise, later when Jesus meets the uh, Samaritan woman at the well, there again, Jesus will display his supernatural power and knowledge. But also, John does not call that a sign. And I think it's because there's an individualized nature to those moments. Instead, the things he calls signs tend to involve a lot of people and are truly incredible, like in terms of their scale. And this first sign here at the wedding at Cana is no exception. I think the reason why people think of this as Jesus' first miracle is because for a very long period of time, the primary English translation of the Bible was the King James Version of the Bible. Uh, you might have grown up in a church that primarily used the King James Version of the Bible. And the King James Version here translates the Greek word semion, which is the word that the ESV, which we're reading from, translates as sign. The King James Version translates that as miracle. Um, but what's interesting here is that it is really the only mainstream English Bible to translate that word as miracle. Pretty much every other mainstream English Bible translates this as sign. The ESV, the NIV, the CSB, the New American Standard, the New Revised Standard, even the Message which is a paraphrase, translates this word as sign rather than miracle. And that may seem like splitting hairs a little bit since all the signs I described to you are miraculous in nature. Healing a man's son, feeding the 5,000, uh, giving sight to the blind man. All of those things are miraculous. But, but the thing is, the word samion, that Greek word, it's indicative of a sign that identifies someone. It's a sign that identifies someone. And it could be miraculous or it could not be miraculous. In a sense, circumcision in the Old Testament was a samion to identify people who were Hebrew. In this case, though, it's not just a miracle. 
It's a glimpse, it's a clue into the true identity of Jesus. In other words, it's Jesus revealing his glory so that people will believe. That's what John says happens in verse 11. It says, and his disciples believed in him, right? He says this was the first of his signs. He manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And that's really where I want to start today. It's kind of at the end of this text, and then we're going to work backwards back to the beginning. So what does this mean that his disciples believed in him? They didn't already believe in him? I mean, it seems pretty clear to me in chapter 1 that at least some of them, like Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel, that, that they believed, like they literally left where they were and they were following him. And in particular, Nathaniel, in a very grandiose fashion, confesses him as Lord. Andrew has been going around to uh, Peter and perhaps other people going, we have found him, right? That, that all of the Old Testament talks about, we have found the Christ, we have found the Messiah. So there was public confession of Jesus as Lord. There was obedient action on their part, but, but now they believe? What, like, what's going on here? You know, John loves this word believe. He uses it most famously in chapter 3, verse 16, when he says, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Belief and faith are deeply intertwined. In fact, the, the word John uses for belief is derived from the Greek word for faith. So these two things are... Uh, interwoven in the same way that they are in today's world. I mean, we use those words interchangeably, don't we? Belief and faith. Um, and both of those words in the Greek come from another word that means basically to be persuaded. I am persuaded that something is true. So, you know, I don't read this as if the disciples didn't believe until now. They were disciples after all. But also their belief was not perfect, which is true for you and me as well. One of the things we say often around here is that we are all unbelievers in some form or fashion, in some area of your life. There is something in your life that you have not fully submitted to Christ. There's some part of you, some area, some thing, some, some quadrant of your life where you might confess that Jesus is Lord, but functionally Jesus is not Lord of that thing, right? Where you're still trying to be Lord over it, or you want other people to be Lord over it. And, and part of the process of sanctification, the process of being conformed to the image of Christ, is a process of identifying those areas of your life, confessing them, and submitting them to Christ. It's a process of growth and maturity. It's something that we need the Holy Spirit to do within us. So I don't read this as if the disciples had no belief until now. I think they did, but also their belief was not perfect. It is, it is in process in the same way that we are in process. And we see this process, we will see this throughout the gospel accounts, right? So to put it another way, I think their faith is affirmed here. After all, this is the first big sign that they have seen. It's the first like kind of gigantic miracle that Jesus has done. Um, 
Part of what John's showing us here is not simply that Jesus turned water into wine. Part of what he's showing us here is that Jesus turned a huge amount of water into wine. And I was thinking, this had to have taken some time. Like, we have a... We have one of those Berkey water filters at our house, and it's like a four-gallon filter, and it takes a minute to fill that thing up, even from the sink, like with, with running water. Like, it takes a little while. And I was just thinking about, like, these guys having to go, like, gather water to come and fill up these gigantic stone jars, these earthen jars um, that were there for like washing hands and washing, washing feet. John mentions like the Jewish rituals of purification that people would do when they entered into someone's home or when they were getting ready to have a meal together. What John tells us here is that they held 20 to 30 gallons each, and there were six of these. So he's trying to give us a sense of scale, right? He's being real detailed. And so let's just run the numbers here for a moment. Let's be conservative and say that they only held 20 gallons each. There's six of them. That's 120 gallons. So assuming Jesus turned 120 gallons of water into wine, that's something like 605 standard bottles of wine or something like uh, 50 cases of wine or like 3,000 really good glasses of wine. So... Part of what he's wanting us to see here is that this is a staggering amount, right? It's a staggering amount. And there is no way that this wedding was that big. There's no way that, that this wedding was that big. They were already running out of wine, which means they had allotted an amount of wine for the crowd, which they've already run through but there's no way they could have needed an additional 3,000 glasses of wine. You and I have never been to a wedding that big. We haven't. A wedding of 1,000 people and everybody drinks three glasses of wine each after they've already had all this other? No, right? And it certainly wasn't happening in this tiny Roman town that was so small that we don't even know for sure where it was today, Right? The point isn't that the wedding was big. The point is that the sign was big. And that's what John tells us in verse 11. This was a manifestation of Jesus's glory. There was no other explanation for it. They couldn't explain it away by saying, oh, maybe the bridegroom and his family had all of these 120 gallons of wine just set aside in case we needed a little bit more. No, no, no. The sign was staggering, and it was a manifestation of Jesus's glory. This was an experience of his power and of his greatness. And, and there is this element with both of the signs that Jesus does that involve food and drink. So this one, where he turns water into wine, and then when he feeds the 5,000, right? There is this unbelievable amount that comes from a seemingly small amount. Jesus doesn't just meet the need. He provides an amount that eliminates the potential that there would even be need in the future. What he does isn't just sufficient. It's above and beyond, right? So, so don't miss this. This is not just a miracle. 
It's a manifestation of Jesus' glory that reveals who he truly is. It is a calling card. It isn't just a snapshot of his ministry. It isn't just a day in the life. He is identifying who he is, and in particular, what he is like, what his character is like. He hasn't come to just give us enough. He has come to give us more than we could ever imagine. And it makes me think of Paul's words in Ephesians 3.20, where Paul says that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. It's so over the top. Now, the tendency is to want to take the reality of Jesus' extreme abundance in this moment and like kind of extrapolate it out into various areas of our lives. I've certainly heard preachers take this and say stuff like, you know, just like Jesus went above and beyond with the wine, God wants to go above and beyond in blessing you in your life, financially or, you know, with children or, you know, whatever you want or making your life incredible in ways you never could have imagined. But guys, that's, that's not what's going on here, right? That's not the point. That's not the takeaway from this passage, Instead, I think this sign and all the other signs here in John are really pointing us to the final and penultimate sign, which is the resurrection. Like These things are not just about how Jesus wants to bless you materially in your life. No, no, no. It's pointing us to what he has done for us through his death and resurrection. It's pointing us to like the center of the gospel. And I find it extremely significant that in this very first sign, it involves a veritable flood of wine, the liquid of which Jesus would later say, this is my blood. And it's not just that we have enough now, it's that we have more than we could ever need. I think these signs are showing us that what Jesus has done for us through his sacrifice is in and of itself abundantly more than we could ask or think. It's more than we even realize. It's more than we even know. You know, context is key when it comes to wine and I grew up in a church culture that would have been more on that like teetotaler end of the spectrum. Uh, not only that, I grew up in a town that was completely dry. Uh, you couldn't buy alcohol at grocery stores. You couldn't drink at restaurants. Um, as a kid, it seemed to me that nobody drank alcohol, but the, the joke was always that everybody drove to Shreveport to drink alcohol, right? They didn't drink in Minden. They drove to Shreveport to drink, which there's probably some truth to that. Um, I even heard preachers, I remember this, and some of you may have, well, I heard preachers say things like the wine they had in the Bible somehow was non-alcoholic. Has anybody heard that before? Um, that was a constant refrain, uh, which is not only not true, it's just kind of dumb, right? Um, one, one commentator I was reading this week said something like, if wine was non-alcoholic, it wouldn't have been called wine. I mean, just something as basic as that. Um, and yet there was that tendency, in, especially here in the South, um, kind of post the age of revivalism, um, where alcohol was painted as nothing but evil. 
And, um, you know, if, if you've grown up in a home where alcoholism has been a, a factor, um, or if that's been an issue in your life, uh, I certainly understand the tendency to want to see it in that way. Um, and yet pretty much all scholars agree that ancient winemaking would have rendered perhaps an even more alcoholic wine than what we have today. And part of the reason why is because they didn't have the filtering processes that we have today. So a lot of like organic material would remain in the wine and it would just kind of continue to ferment the longer that it set. Um, so red wine at this time was probably very dark um, and it's possible that they cut it with water because it was so concentrated. Yet, throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, wine was a sign of God's blessing. It was a sign of provision. The Psalms famously says that it gladdens the heart of man. Isaiah describes God's kingdom as being this place where the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Like that, that, that's like a glimpse of what the kingdom is is like. And wine was a significant part of the celebration of the Passover, where Jews remembered how the Lord had saved them from Egypt and provided for them in the wilderness. But like all good things that the Lord has given us, our tendency is to want to take them and twist them and misuse them and turn them into bad things. Food, sex, work, wine, and the scripture warns us about all of those things as well. Scholar F.S. Fitzsimmons says that these two aspects of wine, its use and its abuse, its benefits and its curse, its acceptance in God's sight, and its abhorrence are interwoven into the fabric of the Old Testament so that it may gladden the heart of man in Psalm 104 or cause his mind to err. In Isaiah 28, it can be associated with merriment in Ecclesiastes 10 or with anger in Isaiah 5. It can be used to uncover the shame of Noah in Genesis 9 or in the hands of Melchizedek to honor Abraham in Genesis 14. But make no mistake here, guys. Jesus is giving us a glimpse of what the kingdom of God is like, which is what I believe all of these signs are doing. He is showing us, much like Isaiah, what a feast in God's house is truly like. It is one of abundance. It is one of ample provision where there is no lack. And I think John is saying that God is going to flood you with blessing and provision through Christ by making it so that, as he says later to the woman at the well, you will never thirst again. There's so much the host of the wedding had to be thinking, we're literally never going to need wine again. Now, the last thing here is Jesus' exchange with his mother as we work back. And we don't really get many scenes like this in the Gospels. Most of our interaction with Mary is with her as a young girl, not, not necessarily with her as an older, more mature woman who has adult children. And yet she is the one who comes to Jesus here and tells him to do something. And then Jesus says, my hour has not come. And it's easy to read that as Jesus saying, hey, it's not time yet for me to begin my ministry. 
It's not yet time for me to step into what God has called me to. It's not yet time for me to introduce myself to the general public through miraculous means. But I actually don't think he's saying any of those things. I don't think that's what he's getting at here. Instead, throughout John's gospel, there is constant reference to Jesus's, quote, hour. And his hour in John is the time of his crucifixion and resurrection. Anytime John refers to that, that is what he's talking about. His hour is the time when the ultimate sign of Christ will be seen. And John makes the case that God won't allow anyone or anything to stop him until his hour has come. In chapter 7, verse 30, it says, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. In chapter 8, verse 20, it says, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. In chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then in chapter 17, verse 1, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays, or it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So Jesus here in chapter 2 is not saying, no, 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 it's not, it's not time for me to do anything miraculous. It's him saying, the time has not yet come for me to depart from this world to the Father. But notice, notice his mother's faith in him. Seems like the answer to that song, Mary, Did You Know, is like, oh, she knew, <laughs> right? She knew. Two takeaways from today. Uh, The first is what we've been talking about for most of this time. Jesus brings abundance where there is lack. And perhaps we can extrapolate this out into other areas of your life, but I really think what John is primarily talking about here is the gospel itself. Jesus brings an abundance of grace and forgiveness into a situation where there should be none where we are clearly at fault, where we are clearly guilty, and where we are clearly separated from the Father, Jesus eliminates the gap. We completely lack the ability to not only save ourselves, we lack the ability to even provide for ourselves. And this is true in all of the signs we see here in John. Bridegrooms can't seem to provide enough wine. Fathers can't provide healing for their children. People can't magically provide food for themselves. A blind man can't give himself sight, but Jesus can. And he doesn't simply give enough. He gives more than enough. So Jesus brings abundance where there's lack. And then number two, Jesus brings honor where there should be shame. Jesus brings honor where there should be shame. I love, uh, I love to cook. And when I was in high school, I worked for a caterer for a little while. And this caterer did huge weddings all over the state. And, you know, there's a point in every wedding reception where if you start to run out of food, it's okay right? Everybody's gotten a plate, 
And so if you, you know, the grilled salmon starts to you know, tap out or the, you know, what, the pork tenderloin carving station, right, or the, um, I don't know, the shrimp cocktail bar, when, when those things start to run out, it's like, we're good, we're good. But there's also a point in every wedding reception where if things start to run out, it's a crisis, right? Because everybody hasn't had a turn. Everybody hasn't gotten a plate. And, and the reason why that's a crisis is not because, in, at least around here, it's not because if people don't get to eat at the reception, they're not going to get to eat for the day or something like that. No, no, no. It's a crisis because it's embarrassing, Right? It's a crisis because it's embarrassing to everyone involved, embarrassing to the host, embarrassing to the caterer. And, and one of the things that gets missed in this account is that by not providing, or by providing not only more wine, but better wine, Jesus saves this bridegroom and his family from shame. He saves them from embarrassment. Even the head waiter is impressed, right? You save the best wine till the end? No one does that. And again, this is a foretaste of what Christ is doing for us through his death and resurrection. He has come to bring honor to us where there should be shame. You've maybe heard that guilt is what you feel when you've done something bad and that shame is what you feel when you are bad. And our culture today wants you to believe that while you may occasionally do the wrong thing, you may occasionally do bad things, that you are not bad, um, except, except for some people who are truly bad, and we want to like cancel them and act like they never existed, right? Which is a little bit of cognitive dissonance that we engage with. But Scripture would wholly disagree with that notion that you are primarily a good person who may occasionally do bad things. That's because Jesus says that it is the fruit of your life that defines you. And the fruit of your life also that defiles you. Because it's a true representation of what's going on in your heart. What's going on inside you? So in the logic of the Bible, it makes no sense to say, I'm a good person who occasionally sins. What makes sense in the logic of the Bible is, I occasionally sin because I am sinful. Because I am a sinner. So since I am a sinful person, it's natural that I would feel both guilt and shame. But what Jesus does is he removes our guilt and he removes our shame and he replaces it with innocence and honor in the sight of God. Don't miss this. Jesus removes our guilt and shame and replaces it with innocence and honor in the sight of God. We go from being dead, Scripture says, in our trespasses, separated from the Father, incapable of being reconciled to him, to suddenly finding ourselves in this position where we're not just reconciled to God, we are now beloved children of the Father in the way that Christ is a beloved child. He removes our guilt and our shame. Yes, we have done bad things. Yes, we are bad. But because of Christ, his abundance covers over all of it, 
the image that we see is this image of blood somehow cleansing all of that, somehow washing it all away as if it never were. Jesus literally takes away the shame that this bridegroom and his family should have felt and he replaces it with such abundance that there not only is not shame, but people are amazed at what's going on. Friends, this is what Jesus has done for us more abundantly than we could ask or think. But it's quite possible that you struggle to believe that your shame and your guilt are removed. It's quite possible you still live under the weight of your guilt and your shame because your view of God is unbiblical. Guys, I've been following Jesus for a long time, and I've only... I've only recently been unpacking with my counselor uh, the areas where I struggle to believe that he's removed my guilt and shame. Um, one of the things that I've, I've come to realize has been a really um, detrimental thing for me in my walk with the Lord was when I was a kid, the church that we were a part of, and, and I've talked about this a little bit in the past, but the church we were a part of regularly put on these dramas that were, uh, I, mean, I mean, they scared the hell out of me as a kid. I mean, there's just no other way to put it. Uh, our church did this thing called Judgment House, where it, that was literally like a Christian haunted house, where you would walk through, I mean, I, I, what I remember was they got, they got a car from like the, you know, the wrecker yard and turned it upside down outside the church and literally had people with blood on them like laid out in this car. And, and the message was basically that these were, some, these were some teenagers that went to a party and drank. And so, of course, they died in the car wreck, right? Um, there was this, thing, this traveling drama that went around called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. And I can't tell you how many, you know, teen, like teenagers who might possibly kiss or have premarital sex that I saw dragged into hell by demons as a kid. And, and some of you are like, that's insane, right? And yet that's, that's what I saw at church as a kid. And what I've learned is even though like intellectually, I know that God is good and loving and full of grace and that he has manifested his glory to us in all of those regards through Christ. Man, there is still something within my brain that thinks that God is just waiting there like with the lightning bolt to strike me down. That God must be unhappy with me. Like that God must be displeased with me. And I don't know if that resonates with any of you guys, but even now, I mean, I, I became a Christ follower when I was like 13. Even now, I'm almost 40, and I've been a pastor for 20 years. I'm, I'm, I'm still like struggling to get that stuff out of me and to truly believe the gospel, to not, to not just have faith that Jesus can save me, but to really believe that what Scripture says is true about him. And while, while your issue may not be that exact thing, my, my guess is there is something in your life where you struggle to believe that what Scripture says is actually true. 
And I would, tr- I would truly encourage you to sit down with somebody and start walking through that. I'm happy to sit down with you, or Justin, or we, we know plenty of great Christian counselors here in town. To, to, and this is a discipleship process, right? This is, this is about taking off the old man and putting on the new man, as Paul says. And none of us are removed from this. None of us. Like, we are all on this journey of sanctification, this journey of being conformed to the image of Christ, coming to believe more and more and more and more that he is who he claims to be. And so I want to leave us this morning with uh, the words of the Apostle Paul that I've been referencing throughout Ephesians 3. It's Ephesians 3, 14 through 20. Um, Because these are, these are some words that I'm seeking to rest in. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Even though I shouldn't have forgiveness, even though I shouldn't be reconciled to the Father, even though he shouldn't look at me and say, it is good, Praise the Lord through Christ. A way has been made for those things to be true of me, even though they are not. And the same thing is true for you. Praise the Lord that he has extended his grace in such an obvious and overflowing way to each and every one of us through Christ. And my prayer for you today, my prayer for myself, is that we would truly have faith in Jesus as the one who is capable to save and that we would be increasingly coming to a place of deep-rooted belief in his sufficiency and his abundance. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word today. Thank you for your abundant grace. Thank you that even though we were dead in our sin, God, you have brought us um, a crown of life. Thank you, Father, for the ways that you heal us, for giving us your Holy Spirit, for sanctifying us. And Father, I pray that you would give us a sense of resolve to be continually aware and reminded and bowled over by your incredible grace. And that we would daily commit ourselves to you and your kingdom and your mission. Thank you, Lord, for your abundance.
Thank you, Lord, for eliminating any need that we could ever have through Christ. Thank you, Lord, that our eternity as your children is secured through Jesus' body and blood. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us?